What a marvelous reminder of the all-sufficiency of God and Christ. I'm reminded, and my wife will remind me, there's a lot of things that I start. And she will probably tell you they don't always get completely done. But I am absolutely thankful that God is not man. And what he starts, he shall complete. Amen? Beautiful reminder. Well, what a blessing it is to be here this morning. Once again, it is a joy to be before the house of the Lord, the house of uh, First Baptist. And um, we are so excited that our Pastor Zach uh, had an opportunity to once again share his gift and to bless a congregation as he blesses ours each and every week. So if you would, um, just before we bring forth God's word, uh, would you join me for just a quick prayer? Most gracious and heavenly Father, I thank you once again. Father, because this time is your time. This service is your service. Everything we do, Lord, bears your stamp and bears the mark that has been given us in Christ Jesus, the blood that has been shed for us. And so, Father, right now, we just pray that you would have your way. Continue, Lord, to allow us to be in the presence of you in worship. Allow our minds to be clear. And, Lord, right now, allow your word to be brought forth with clarity and truth. And, Father, may it rest on the hearts of the souls that need your awakening, that need your completion. And, Father, may it yield the fruit that yields 10, 50, 100 fold. Because, Father, you are so deserving and worthy of all honor, praise, and glory. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we get to start this um, week with, or this time period that we're going through, Romans. It is a wonderful book that... Um, we had the pleasure, if anybody, I think a, a while back, we had an opportunity to go through Romans. This time we're kind of taking a little uh, um, mini version of Romans. Uh, we'll just be covering chapter 8. But nevertheless, Romans is one of those books that truly is transformative. Um, many of us, and some will confess that, it was Romans that led us through to Christ, that revealed the truth of the scriptures. And so today we'll be coming out of Romans 8. If you have your Bibles, uh, if you have the Pew Bibles, it'll be on page 887. And we'll be reading out of Romans 8 and starting in, in verse 1. Um, before I get there, I just want you to mark that spot. But please hear these things. It's a new book, so we haven't gone through it. So give me uh, a moment to just introduce it. Uh, Romans, the letter to Romans, stands as again the clearest and most systematic presentation of Christian doctrine in all the scriptures. Paul began discussing that which was most easily observed, that is, the sinfulness of all humanity. All people have been condemned due to our rebellion against God. However, God in his grace offers us justification by faith. In his son Jesus, we are justified by God. We receive redemption, salvation, because Christ's blood covers our sins. But Paul makes it clear that the believer's pursuit of God doesn't stop with salvation. 
It continues as each of us is sanctified. That means set apart for special purpose, for special use, made holy as we persist in following him. Paul's handling of these issues offers us a logical and a complete presentation of how a person can be saved from the penalty and the power of their sin. Almost every biblical student and scholar will say, the Bible is the greatest book in the world, and if they had to choose the greatest book within the Bible or letter, they would say Romans is the greatest book. And if they had to pick one of the books, they would say within that book or letter as it is, chapter 8 is the greatest chapter in the Bible. Because in it, God gives us the complete story and the complete revelation of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to come to Christ, how we gain salvation and how we live under the influence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so as we start in chapter eight, we are going back to a little part of that um, book that gives a little bit of background to where we pick up. And so in chapter six, Paul emphasizes that because we have this union with Christ, we should walk in the newness of life. And in chapter seven, he stresses that by the death and resurrection, which we have a relationship with the risen Christ. And therefore, we should bring forth fruit of God. But then after that, it kind of goes off into a bit of a journey where Paul is trying to help us understand the wrestling nature of what it means to be Christian, what it means to be Christ, and yet what it means to still struggle in that. And so you get this wonderful uh, revelation of the struggling saint through chapter 6 and 7, as it were. And then he comes back in 8 and deals with the power of the Spirit. When he leaves off in chapter 7, he, he leaves us with this understanding that there's a struggle there. And, and what is his hope? What is the solution? And we come to chapter 8 where Paul deals again with the power of the Spirit. And so that's where we will pick it up today. Perhaps the two themes that I think are most important in chapter 8 is that of liberty and that of assurance. These are the ones that Paul brings out the gospel and he explains how they set us free, how we have liberty in the spirit, and yet how we have a great hope that we can be confident and that we can rest upon. And so today, if you're feeling a little less confident, if the things of today has struck you, if we're in a lot of what's going on in our world today, we'd have to admit that we have had some struggling times, even as Christians. We've been wondering, Lord, have I done enough? Am I good enough or have the things that I've done please you? Some might be thinking, Lord, I, I don't know if I'm quite there yet. If something bad happens, I might be thinking, Lord, are you mad at me? Did, I, did, did what I do make this happen? Is this a reaction of you to me? 
some of us are trying to hold down within all the things that are going on inside. And we present a very good face. We're hello, brother. Hello, sister. How you doing? I'm fine and I'm highly blessed. But inside, we're saying and we're wrestling with God and he's saying, sin is encroaching upon you. Do not let it have its way because you know you're struggling to try to get to the next day. That's real. That's what we experience. The beautiful thing about what Paul is helping us to understand in this letter is we as Christians should have a place to go, a comfort to rely upon, and know that God has not left us alone, but will reveal how we conquer those things. And so that's where Paul then explains in Romans 8 how it frees us from this overbearing burden and allows us to live a pleasing life to God and fulfill not only our lives, but gives us pleasure and actual joy in doing the things that please God. How do we do that? The quick answer, by God's spirit. And so the big question today that we will be answering is, how does the Holy Spirit free us to live a life pleasing to God? How does the Holy Spirit free us to live a life pleasing to God. This is a chapter about freedom and hope. And so we'll start off then in Romans chapter 8, answering that question, how does the Holy Spirit free us to live a life pleasing to God? And for those taking notes, then the first point will be He condemns sin in the flesh. He condemns sin in the flesh. And I'll read chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, if you read along with me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his son in the likeness, likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We'll stop there. The freedom that God gives us first requires something to happen in order that we might have the greatest element of obstruction for us, and that is sin. And so Paul starts out here with this great statement. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are often taught that if there is a therefore, we need to know then that this is a completion. This is a follow-up of some other theme or some other thought or some other body of text that precedes it. And what we find is that in chapter 7, Paul was wrestling. 
We're familiar with that wrestling of Paul where he says, the good that I want to do, I can't make myself do. And the evil that I hate is what I keep doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he then praises God. And we start then with that. Therefore now, having known that I have gone under this wrestling, that I have sinned and that I wrestle with my sin in me and I can't figure out why I can't shake it. He says, therefore, now there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does he mean? Very simply stated, the person who is in Christ is safe and secure. He's safe and secure from condemnation now and forever. He will not be judged as a sinner. He will not face condemnation. Now, the believer will be judged. There is another judgment that believers go through. And Paul brings us to mind that our works will be judged. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. There will still be an assessment, but he is beyond condemnation. He shall never be condemned for sin. He shall never be separated from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And note the most crucial point as to why. Only the believer who is in Christ Jesus will not be condemned. This isn't everybody. Those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, what does that mean to be in Christ Jesus? To be in Christ means that a believer walks and lives in Christ day by day. A true believer lives, moves, and has his being in Christ. His promises he relies upon. Christ lived, died, and arose, so the believer believes that as Jesus promised by faith, I too will live, die, and rise in Christ. Christ is their representative, substitute, and mediator in life, in death, and in the resurrection. Simply put, person who believes in Christ has put all he is and has in the hands of the keeping and trusting Savior Christ. Therefore, the believer simply places his position, his faith and welfare, in Christ. It means I've gone all in. Christ truly is all that I have. And through him, everything else will be received from him. That's what in Christ means. But there's more. Verse 2 says, For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Well, it declares that There is a freedom of power from sin. The law of the spirit of life. We're going to find it out from a comparison with the law of death. 
but that this means the authority or the power exercised by the Holy Spirit leading to life is called the law of life and spirit. Paul's not talking about the Mosaic law. He's talking about the law as a principle, like the law of gravity. And what then does the law of sin and death mean? Well, I believe the answer comes right from the next chapter. If you turn to chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, real quick, I'll read it as well. Paul will identify, again, this struggle that we talked about. And in verse 22 and 23, Paul says, so I find, I'll start with verse 21. So I find it by law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, verse 23, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And there you see the law of sin. And so Paul in verse 23 is taking this term law of sin. Well, he doesn't put death there. But it's the same words being used. The only addition of death is in chapter 8 because the conclusion is the law of sin and death, the law of sin concludes in death if the holy or the power of the spirit is not able to resist or to impede or stop it. And so Paul brings forth a conclusion. The law of sin and death is at play with the law of life in Christ. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. So what is the law of sin? It's a power or an impulse, a principle that's at work in my body to make me at war with myself and draw me to do evil. It's virtually the same thing that Paul talks about, the indwelling of sin. And so what we have is this law going on. So it's a principle. And likewise, we're familiar with principle law. We understand things like the law, as I said, of gravity. If I have a handkerchief and I throw it in the air and miss it, it stops. It doesn't keep going. But why does it stop if it comes down into my hand? The law of gravity would say that it must keep going. That's the principle. But there's another law at place. When this hits my hand, the law of inertia takes place. And it says that an object will keep moving unless an object with a greater force stops it. I'm summarizing Newtonian law, so for you physics and people out there. But there's a law greater than the law of gravity that prevents it from completion. Likewise, the law of the spirit of life is greater than the law of sin and death. Paul is identifying that law of the life that God has placed in us 
the law of the spirit of life has set you free because it is greater than the power of the law of sin and death. That's a comforting note because it makes us and it helps us understand the truth of greater is he in me than he that is in the world. And if the spirit indwells us, as Paul is helping us to see here, then there are at all times God working to prevent the laws of sin and death from affecting and taking control of me. And so we have this beautiful picture then of the law of sin and death, the law of the resurrected life that's in Christ that met death in all its forms and triumphed over it. So we get this great reality in in verse one where there's no condemnation, we have justification. And where the law of the spirit of life is battling over and overcoming the law of sin and death, we have sanctification. And so those things Paul leads us off with. But then he brings us into verse three where he says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. This verse is perhaps one of the most succinct statements of our substitutionary atonement to be found in scripture. It expresses the heart of the gospel message. Jesus Christ paid the penalty on behalf of every person And he would turn them from sin and ask them to trust in his sacrifice as Lord and Savior. God's holy law reveals the standards of his righteousness. And that is perfection. As shown how men can't keep those standards. The law of God is perfect. And in order for us to be under the law, we would have to be perfect. And yet we aren't. We cannot keep the law. And so Paul agrees the problem, though, is not the law. Because the law, he says, is good and righteous and holy. The problem is our depravity makes it impossible for the law to save us because it makes the fulfillment of the law impossible. Paul says God did what the law could not do. What was that? Save us. How? By the mercy of God. He stepped in and by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he sent his own son who was equal with him in every way. He was his essence, his power, he is God. And yet, he took on the representation of man. Paul didn't say he came in sinful flesh because we know he's not a sinner. There was no sin in him. But he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He is described as being in the likeness of sinful flesh Because he took on humanity. He was a suitable sacrifice. He was able to 
understand and, 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 and be the representative of fleshly man yet without sin. What then does Paul mean when he says he's condemned in the flesh? God executed a final sentence on the condemnation of sin. And everyone who is in Christ benefits. God's condemning of, condemning of sin means God found sin guilty. And sent his sin to be finally punished and carried out by the death of his son, Jesus. He's the only person who ever lived who deserved not to suffer. But he died and he suffered for our sins in his body on the cross. He was delivered over because of our transgressions. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Isaiah says, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. When Jesus died, God was condemning sin, sentencing it on Jesus, what rightfully should have been on us. And as he did that, he put sin, not the sinner, we're the sinners. He put the sin to death. Sin no longer has its hold on us. We still wrestle with it. But the judgment has been made and God did that in Christ Jesus. Sin has been conquered in Christ. He absorbed all the wrath that was due to us. Because there's no way we could ever stand before God as sinners. Christ was our substitute to do that. So God punished him. Why would God do that? Why would he accept a people who rebels against him? Doesn't have the ability with all that's been given. Why would he give his perfect spotless son to die for us? Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. By condemning sin in Christ as our sacrifice, he can now justly avoid condemning us who are in Christ and that we who have become what we couldn't be in Christ Christ became what we couldn't pay on the cross. So this exchange has been done. The righteous for the unrighteous. And so when Paul talks that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled, not only is it agreeable that it is Christ taking on our sins, but Paul alludes to another element here, and he talks about it later in Romans, Paul says this, the, fulfill, the fulfillment of the law is not only in Christ taking our sins, that he did. But if it was just about Christ paying for us and it was done, he wouldn't have said that the law might be fulfilled in us. He would have said for us. 
Why did he say in us? Well, because the royal law is that we don't just get sin pardoned and then we go off and do whatever we want to do. When sin is pardoned and we are put in Christ and we have accepted Christ as Savior, the Holy Spirit that indwells us empowers us to do what God always desired for us to do. And Paul brings that out in chapter 13. He says, oh, no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus identifies a new commandment I give you. What? That you love one another. The fulfillment that Paul is saying that we have now been given in the spirit to fulfill. Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirement that we couldn't. But in us, the Holy Spirit comes so that we might participate in now living lives of righteousness that reveal itself by how we are empowered to love one another. And so fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. In Christ, we're freed from the law. Pastor Zach preached a few weeks ago. We're free in Christ, but it isn't licensed to go off and do whatever we want to do. Freedom in Christ isn't that I now no longer have a condemnation or sin so I can go about my agenda. It's free to now do what the new heart and the earnest deposit in me desires to do. I have been made from the stone set for wrath and destruction to a new being. And that new being longs to love and obey God. The struggle Paul had is, I want to do that, but I can't because the sin nature is still in me. And so God has given us the confidence that now you have been given a helper. You couldn't do it. If Christ died and that was it and your sins had been paid for, I'd be done. But I wouldn't have the ability to go another day without sinning. Paul's talking about there's still a remnant of sin in you. God hasn't taken away the presence of sin yet. How do I live out this desire, this need to be like Christ? I need Christ in me. That's why there's no law that we're bound, that we are not now under the law because the law has been placed in our hearts. The passage that Pastor Rob read from Ezekiel, I have put their spirit in them so that they will now follow my law because that is how they live and breathe and move. The Christian desires to be and do all that God desires of them. And so we've been free to follow after God. We are free because the condemnation or the condemning of sin in the flesh has been accomplished in Christ. But that's not all that God did. In order for us to be free 
to live a life pleasing to God, we must have our flesh, the sin nature, that, that flesh that desires to strike out against God, and we wrestle with it times. That must be condemned, and Christ did that. The Holy Spirit continues to do that. But as well, we need the power to live a righteous life. And so Paul gives us then that second point. The Holy Spirit frees us to live a life pleasing to God by providing the power to live a righteous life. Verses 5 through 13 read like this. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh. But in the spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because righteousness, because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We're told that it's not by the flesh that we are to live, but by the spirit. The righteousness that the law requires can only come through the Holy Spirit. And Paul explains two ways. He says, and you get this contrast going on. There's a way that is impossible to please God. And then there is a way that is pleasing and acceptable. And God gives us the ability to do that. But he says... It's impossible to please God by the means of the flesh. And so he gives us three reasons why it's impossible for those who are in the flesh to please God. And understand what we mean by the flesh. The flesh is the sin nature. And the sin nature is that sinful tendencies and the desires of the human being. So we're not talking about the physical, like your flesh that you can feel and touch. We're talking about the nature that is within us that still desires and can get pulled to do sinful things. So the flesh. And so he gives three reasons why it's impossible then for the flesh to please God. And the first one is verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. If a Christian is walking according to the flesh, his mind will not be on spiritual things, but on earthly things. And when he's talking about mind, and we hear this thing set on the mind, he's actually talking about a mindset. 
So it's really a position. The, the original language kind of brings out a fuller definition. It says that as a mindset, it denotes the basic direction of a person's will. It's our fundamental orientation, the convictions of a heart attitude that steers the course of life. So a fleshly mindset has the image of us being set in all our being on a nature that is sinful and and goes against the will of God. A sinful mindset. So a flesh mind or those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh can't please God. Living life as though God doesn't exist is simply living according to your own preferences, choices, and desires. And it's like picking a side that I choose to go this way with my flesh in the world rather than by the Spirit and be led to God's ways. And we see that much in our, in our, in our world today. Different kinds of mindsets. We have the growth mindset. We're really bent on trying to, those who have everything focused on getting to the next step in the ladder. I, I have to have the greatest, I have to have the biggest business. I got to have the greatest uh, record collection. I have to have the greatest lawn. I have to have, everything has to be, it's kind of this competitive growth mindset. And everything gets focused in that. There are those who have a mindset for social media. We've been doing a series on it. Everything is involved in social media. If you look at them for three seconds, they got their phone and they, they, they almost can't, if you start taking it away, it, it, it just can't do it because that phone's their life. Now, I have to admit, at one time, <laughs> that's, we, we, we demonstrated a long a life ago in, 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 in a technical field uh, people used to remember the, 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 the Blackberry. Anybody remember Blackberry? There are some older folks here. Uh, they nicknamed it Crackberry because it was such a crazy thing that I could finally get email on my hip at any moment. And everybody loved it until they realized I can get email on my hip. And every moment, whether it's 10 in the, in the morning or 10 at night, and it just became addictive that you had to have that on you. So today's been replaced with Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever you name. But it keeps you locked in and you're just in it. Can't go without it. It's a mindset. And he says that this mindset is against, by it in and of itself, it may not be bad. You could have a church Mindset. I, I'm, my mind is focused on that which is in the spirit, that which is of God. Not religious, where I'm just doing, and that's another mindset, religiosity. I'm doing a lot of things that seem spiritual, but they are not pleasing before God. Peter is an example of God rebuking this mindset. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not, and hear this, setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter slipped, we can see. Peter had this great revolutionary mindset. We're going to 
take Rome. We're going to take this. We're going to go. Jesus, what are you talking about? He wasn't mindful of the things of God. He was mindful of what was to be accomplished for Israel and Jerusalem. Jesus had to rebuke him. Not only does he show that the mindset that isn't for Christ is in the world, but it's also satanic. Jesus' words here make it evident that Peter's fleshly mindset reflected Satan's views and values. So Paul gives us that first one. He says, first thing why you can't please God is because there are those who live according to the flesh and they set their minds on the things of the flesh. Second thing, he says in verse 6, for to set the mind, this course of life on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Second reason why those who are in the flesh can't please God, because setting the mind on the flesh is literally death. He didn't say, as he usually says, leads to death. He said it is death. The person who is carnally or sinfully or fleshly minded is dead to God. that is a fearful place to be because God has no connection with them. And in that state, you literally walk in danger because you have departed from the one and only who can give you life and eternal life. And so the mind that is set against God is a mindset with death. We know that there's a final judgment of separation. That's what death is, is to be separated from God. But you can be alienated in the physical and limited way now. Now, does it mean if your mind is set against God that you die right on the spot? Apparently not. Because we have many in this world and around that we've seen that do not set their minds on Christ. But it, what it does mean is then that all the privileges and all that God has given for those as we talked about at first in Christ is not available. And yet you walk at a hair's breadth that at any moment your life could be called today. Dangerous place to be in. So we have those who then set their minds against God and they can't please him because it is death. He does not recognize them. And then third, those who are in the flesh, they're actively hostile towards God and his laws. Verse seven says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Fallen men hate God. They reject his authority and they resist his word. Ephesians says, Ephesians 2 and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and whereby the nature of child, by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. 
James sums this up and says, the wisdom is not that kind of wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. Those who are unsaved in the flesh and those who put their mindsets on the flesh serve Satan in mind and body. They don't consciously, not everybody consciously serves Satan, but in releasing God from control, you are now under the prince of this air, the influencer of this world, Satan. Those three cannot please God, for they are fleshly. They are against God. Paul sums it, sums it up like this. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The natural mind the natural man doesn't accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are only spiritually discerned. That means they are only spiritually seen, understood, and grasped. And if you do not have the Spirit, then none of the things that are of God make sense to you, and you reject them, and you revolt against them, and you rebel. These verses raise a fundamental question. How are we forming our minds? What are we putting in them? What are we exposing them to? Because if our mindsets are, dealt, are dealing with that which comes in, that's which we point and focus our attention to, are we guilty of promoting and filling our minds with the things of this world? Or are we engaging in the things that help build up our spirit? Bible studies? Are we having conversations with fellow Christians? Things that will help us exhorting one another in prayers and hymns and songs of praise and scriptures. Is that what's coming into us? Or is it us getting filled by the world and wondering why we struggle because the spirit is being pushed to the side while we engage in the things that build the flesh? Do we have to be careful? He then goes on to say, but faith through the spirit. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, you and anyone who does not have the spirit of God does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, all of the body is dead because of sin. The spirit is life because of righteousness. When Paul says you, however, are not in the flesh, it's in fact a good thing. We're given this great uh, privilege of knowing that now we have the body of Christ embodied in the spirit living within us. That word live means to dwell in you as a permanent residence. Verse 9 says, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, then you're not of Christ. It's, it's pretty simple. But the beautiful thing is if I do have the Holy Spirit, then Christ is mine and I am his. And that changes everything. If we have the Holy Spirit in us, the power of Christ dwells in us. I think sometimes we, 
In fact, we don't quite have the words to express. God didn't say, I will give you some great principles. I will give you some ways in which you might be able to achieve a semblance of likeness to my son. God said it wasn't sufficient for me to save you and leave you alone. He says, I saved you so that I could put me in you. Having God in us is not a trivial thing. And what Paul likes us to understand is that if God is in you, then there should be power that manifests itself because the God who created all things now dwells in you through the Holy Spirit. The life that Christ lived has now been given to you through the Holy Spirit to live out the life of Christ to the full glory of God. Amen? We have a power in us that we don't tap into. And it's not a power like as a force or a source. It's a person. The Holy Spirit is the person of the God, the Trinity. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one who enables you to live the life of Christ while still remaining here and clearing off all the things that would, that would hinder relationship with God so that at the end you might be presented to God. You are not your own. We are to be presented to God. And so the Holy Spirit is at work making us and conforming us and transforming us so that we would resemble the very Son of God. When we see him face to face, the joy will come because I've known you for so long, because I've walked with you in the Spirit, I've talked with you in the Spirit, I've prayed with you in the Spirit, I've sang with you, I've overcome death with you in the Spirit, I've done all things in the Spirit. And so the only thing I'm waiting to see is how much do I now look like my Savior? That's the desire that God has placed in us. And he desires to complete it. Friends, today the Christian life is fellowship with the Spirit. We understand that from Romans. That's the game changer. The Spirit of God has been placed in you. And all the power that God had. We're not yet in the glorified state. We are still in this sanctification, being made ready for glorification. But there's so much more we can be doing Because we have the power of Christ. Overcoming fear, anxieties, troubles. We'll still go through them. But we have God with us. And so when we understand that this glorious scene that's being unveiled. God the Father ordains our salvation and calls us into the life of his sovereign will. God the Son accomplishes our salvation on the cross. And God the Holy Spirit applies the accomplished salvation to our hearts in our lives. The question is, has the Holy Spirit done this for you?
Has he done this for you? That's his job, is to reveal Christ. And so if the Holy Spirit is working in you, then the question is, do you believe in Jesus? Are you in Christ? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the eternal God, and that he lived the perfect life pleasing to God here on earth? Do you believe that he died on the cross as our sin bearer to take the penalty for our sins on himself? Do you believe that he rose again from the dead conquering death and hell as the victorious life-giving redeemer? Do you believe that he is sitting at God's right hand right now interceding for you? Do you believe that he's coming again to judge and reign? If you answered yes to all of that, then I pray that's because the spirit in you has revealed the truths of that. And if you don't know Christ and you can't answer yes to all of those, I pray that you would not let today go without questioning and asking questions and actually answering yes to all of those. And if you need help with understanding what the gospel, that is the gospel, what it means in your life, see me. See any of our pastors, pretty much see anybody here who claims the name of Christ. And how will you know? Just ask them. Christians aren't undercover. We're not secret agents. If you ask us, we will tell you. We are his. Would you like to be? So ask somebody. We are heirs with Christ. And, and Paul finishes up in verse 12. He says, so then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Sin is not to be played with. We must, our component of working with this is to have the power to kill sin in us. There's a saying from John Owens that says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. We have the power to overcome sin in our lives. There will always be a remnant there until God comes for us or we go home. There will be a remnant of sin that we struggle with. The presence of sin is still there. But the power to overcome that is in Christ Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And so we have the ability to fight that. And we must fight that. Many of you feel to defeated today because sin is encroaching on you. And you may feel like, I have no way, I don't know how to begin living a more victorious life in the spirit versus the ways that I might have neglected in God and allowed so many things to, to come my way that gives me anxiety, no sense of peace, no sense of assurance, no sense of a long-lasting joy. I just want to give you these three things. 
Three things that I believe helps us to mortify, kill, sin in us, but strengthen and fortify the spirit to do so that we can walk along with the spirit. And one is a humble confession. Humbly confess, I've sinned. Paul says, I find this present evil in me, that evil is present. He's not trying to hide it. He's trying to let it know. It'd be known. I'm struggling with this. Humble confessions before God and humble confessions to those whom you have a trusting relationship in the Lord. We should be making those confessions so that the intercession of God and others through the Spirit would continue to fortify the Spirit. Secondly, meditate and memorize Scripture. The challenge that we have this going on, memorizing the whole book of, of, of chapter 8, I'm sorry, of Romans, is a wonderful exercise. For some of us who are a little bit older and it takes a little bit longer, that's okay. As long as you are able to continue the feeding and the food of Scripture in your daily balanced lives, it will do wonders. Prayer. Pray and keep praying. All types of prayer we are to be providing so that God continues to strengthen us in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit frees us for life by living and giving us an ability to have power to a righteous life and he overcomes and condemns sin in the flesh. To be filled with the Spirit is to have one mind completely under his divine control and this requires the word dwelling richly in the believer. And when our minds are under God's control, our behavior inevitably will be well. It's not a matter of available power, but available will. Do you will to be under his power? Do you will to allow him to make the changes in you and in us so that we can live out the life that God has called us to? I pray that we do, and I pray that we accept this gift of the Spirit in Christ from God. Amen? Let us pray.